Okay, good morning, everybody. All right. I just want to reiterate what has already been said. Thank you so much for all the work that went into Vacation Bible School this past week. I was in awe of the congregation here and the willingness to serve and get exhausted. Hadn't been that tired in a very long time. Uh, towards the end of the week, somebody asked me how I was feeling. Uh, you guys ever go to Chipotle? You order a burrito, okay, and you're watching the kid who's clearly his first day at work put the stuff in the burrito, and you realize he's put way too much stuff in the burrito, and then he goes to wrap it up in the foil, and he hands it to you, and you're like, there's no way this thing is going to hold together, right? That's how I felt in that suit the entire week of VBS, okay? But to the suit's credit, it stayed in one piece, so I'm very grateful for that. We are in John chapter 4. Please turn over there. We're going to continue in our journey through the Gospel of John this morning. We are at the end of John chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 43. It's a text about a father's love, and I think it's very uh, fitting that we deal with this text on this day. It's not a long text, but it's powerful. And it's one of those that I think it's not as well known as others in the Gospel of John. It's one of those where if you're reading through John, you might be tempted to kind of skim over that one and, and move to another one. But I love this story because it, it brings into harmony two of the things we've been talking so much about in the Gospel of John, about who Jesus is, his identity, his name, and life, and what it means to really have life in Jesus. And so we're going to talk about that together this morning. If you would, let's just read through the text before we get into it. So verse 43 of John chapter 4. After the two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no, no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So working our way through this text, a few things to notice. First of all here, after the two days he left for Galilee, if you remember where we're at in Jesus' journey, he had been in Jerusalem for the Passover. That's when he cleansed the temple. And it says that he performed some miracles there and people came to believe in him. But then he left Judea on his way back to Galilee. On his way, though, he went through what area? Samaria. That's where he had the encounter with the Samaritan woman that we talked about not too long ago. So he's now 
leaving the area of Samaria on his way to Galilee. And we get this curious statement. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. The synoptics also reference this, but they seem to use it in a different way. What does John have in mind here by making that statement? Well, one of two things. Either Jesus is talking about leaving Judea, that he has no honor there in the area of Judea, and specifically Jerusalem, and so he's leaving there to go somewhere he does have honor. And you might ask the question, well, why would that refer to Jerusalem? That's not his own town. Well, in a way, it was, right? Where's the hometown of Messiah going to be beside Jerusalem? The hometown of every true Israelite, right? So maybe it's referencing that. He's leaving a place where he didn't have honor to go to a place where he does have honor. Or it could be referencing Galilee, which he was about to go to, and the idea that he didn't have honor there. And so he's going to a place where he has no honor in order to establish honor there. I don't know which one it is, but it's one of those two possibilities. But that's why John makes that statement. It says, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And so here's this place he's going, and people are eager to receive him. This is why. It says they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Remember, at Passover, people pilgrimaged from wherever they lived back to Jerusalem. So these people had gone from Galilee to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And while there, they had seen the things Jesus was doing, and so they're eager to have him back in their area, for they had also been there. It says, once more he visited Cana in Galilee. So we know this town because in chapter 2, we're introduced to Cana. This is where Jesus goes to the wedding feast and performs his first public sign where he turns the water into wine. He's back in that town. So surely then, not only had they been in Jerusalem to see what he did, but news about what he had done at that wedding in Cana had also spread throughout that town. And so people are excited to see him. And we're going to see this excitement build as we go throughout the story of John. As Jesus' fame grows, wherever he goes, crowds start to gather because they want to interact with this man. It says, there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum, and not just ill, but sick to the point of, Death. This child is on its deathbed. And his father comes to Jesus, having heard who Jesus was and specifically what Jesus could do, and he's desperate for help. It said, When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. All parents can relate to the situation this man is in. If your child was facing death, And you were convinced that there was a cure. Could anything stop you from gaining hold of that cure? No, nothing's going to come in between you and a solution to your child's problems, right? This man is desperate, and so he's begging Jesus for help here. What's very interesting, though, is the reaction that he gets from Jesus. This is the first thing Jesus says to this man as he's begging him for help, and it's A little startling the first time you encounter it. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. You think that's what that guy was hoping to hear? No, Jesus seems to be dissuading him from asking him for help. And it comes across as, as crass in a way that Jesus would respond this way. So why does he do this and what is this all about? Well, let me point something out to you that might be helpful as you try to make sense out of this. Here in the Gospel of John, we're at the end of chapter 4. We're almost five chapters in. We're almost a quarter of the way through the Gospel of John. And this is the first time 
John records Jesus healing someone. Now, if you contrast that to other Gospels, look at uh, excuse me, Mark, for example. Right away in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 1, he's got Jesus healing all kinds of people. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, who's very sick. And then right after that, in verses 29 through 34, it says, That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, and the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. So Mark jumps right into the gospel story. Yeah, Jesus was healing people right off the bat. But for John, he waits until he's a quarter of the way through his story of Jesus before he introduces Jesus as a healer. Why do you think John does that? And I think that is tied in with why he says this to this man. Unless you see signs and wonders, you people will never believe. Remember what John does at the end of his gospel, and I know I keep taking us back to this, but the end of John chapter 20, these things I wrote to you so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and then what does he say? And that by believing you might have, fill in the blank, life in his name. John is very concerned about bringing people to a mature, deep faith in the identity of Jesus. He doesn't want them to believe just in a man who could do really cool things. He wants them to believe in the Christ, the Son of God. He's not interested in a shallow faith. He's interested in a deep faith. And so he doesn't want us to build our faith on a foundation of just Jesus could do cool stuff. Now, that's not to say that John was dismissive of the importance of the signs that Jesus performed. In fact, the opposite of that is true. In the very next chapter, in John chapter 5, Jesus is going to talk about witnesses to his own identity. You don't have to take me at my word. He says, there's all these other reasons you should believe that I am who I say I am. And one of those is the works that the Father sent him to do. Believe because of the things that you've seen me do. So the works are vitally important. But what are the works for? That by believing you might have life in his name. What is Jesus referencing the works for? Believe in who I say I am. It's all about the identity of Jesus. The works are important, not because they establish Jesus as a miracle worker, but because they establish Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. The works are vitally important to understanding the identity of Jesus. And I think that's Jesus' frustration here. You guys just like the stuff I can do, but is anyone paying attention to who I say I am? And so this man is met with this initial resistance. We'll get back to that in just a second. But this is the man's response. The royal official said he's not dissuaded. He's not going to be stopped from convincing Jesus to help his son. Because he's convinced that that's exactly what Jesus can do. And so he pleads with him, sir, come down before my child dies. And this is Jesus' response. Go, your son will live. Again, not exactly what the man had in mind, right? He came to get Jesus and bring him back to where his son was so that he could heal his son. And Jesus just says, go, your son will live. You could, in that situation, take offense at that. And feel like Jesus was being dismissive of what you were asking him to do. But look at how this man reacts. He's not offended in any way. It says, uh, the man took Jesus at his word. This immediate conviction in that what Jesus said was going to come true. Is that faith? Is that faith? Yes, it is. 
It might be the beginning of faith. This man still might not have full faith in exactly who Jesus was, but he had enough faith to believe what Jesus was saying and take him at his word. And then it says while he was still on his way, he's not even home yet. His servants met him with the news that his boy was living. He didn't die. He's healed. And when he inquired as to the time, it turns out it was the exact moment that Jesus had said that to him, right? And so he starts to put the pieces together. The father realized that it was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. John is careful to point out that, remember, this is in, Ga- this is in Cana, and this is the second sign he performed in Cana. And so why is John doing that? Why does he want us to think back to that first sign when Jesus turned water into wine at Cana? And I want to point out just a few similarities between the first thing he did in Cana and the second thing that he did. Number one, this is a reference to the powerful words of Jesus, the authority with which Jesus speaks. If you remember back to that miracle in John chapter 2 when Jesus turns the water into wine. What prompted him doing that? It was his mom, right? You remember Mary came to him and said, they have no wine. (laughs) They have no wine. And then he responds, and then she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. There's a focus on the words of Jesus and the power behind those words. Same thing here in this story. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. When Jesus says, go, your son will live, he's not being dismissive. He's illustrating the power in his very words. Jesus didn't need to be there to lay hands on the child to heal him. Just saying the words, he will live, brought that child back to health. And so John is reminding us of the power and the authority of Jesus' words. Second, there's this reluctance to act on Jesus' behalf. He's reluctant to do anything in both stories. Again, Jesus' mom says, they have no wine. Remember Jesus' response? Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus doesn't jump up and say, oh, sweet, I've been waiting for an opportunity to do this. No, at first he's like, what does this have to do with me? But then his mom presses, and he, she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Right? It's at the, it's at the, the urging of his mom that he actually goes forward and does the thing he's going to do. And we find a parallel in this story here. This man comes to him, and Jesus' initial response is, you're just looking for more signs and wonders so you can believe. But the man persists because of the love he has for his son. And so Jesus then reluctantly acts. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. But then he says, what? Go, your son will live. Jesus is not interested in putting on a show for anyone. He's interested in those who might come to faith. And I think this man illustrated to Jesus the genuineness, not only in his concern for his child, but also in his conviction that Jesus could do what he was asking him to do. And so Jesus responds with action. And then third is what the result of all this is. What happened in Cana when Jesus turned all that water into wine? He didn't make a spectacle out of it, but his disciples knew what happened. And so what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and the disciples believed in him. And then we find the same thing here in John chapter 4, 
What happens as a result of what Jesus did for this man's child? This man realizes that his child is made well because of the very words of Jesus. And it says, so he and his whole household believed. So there's these similarities that John is illustrating for us in both of these stories. But here's the question I really want us to zero in on this morning. John is very concerned about the identity of Jesus. He doesn't want us to have a shallow faith just built on what Jesus can do, but a real, genuine, deep faith built on the identity of Jesus. So why is John so determined to convince us of Jesus' identity? Why is he so concerned about us coming to belief in who Jesus is? Why is that a concern of John? And today being what it is, I would like to remind you of two things that we learned way back months ago in the prologue. The first one is found in John chapter 1 and verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. My dad's here this morning. Dad, can you wave for everybody? There, there he is. There's my Larry boy. I'm glad he... He's here because we don't get a lot of Father's Day to spend together, so uh, we get to go celebrate him this afternoon, and I'm excited about that. I hope if you haven't met him before, you will meet him today. You can meet my dad. You can get to know my dad. Uh, you can build a friendship with my dad. You can learn more about him through stories that I've got to tell about my dad. And I've got a few if you'd like to hear them. Just come and ask me, right? But one thing you can never do is know my dad the way that I know my dad. You can never know him as a father. That's a privilege only I and my brothers get to have, that we get to know him as a father. The only way you will ever know him as a father is if he were to adopt you and make you one of his children. Then you would get to know him as a father. You know, the story of the Bible is a story about a God who created us to be in a relationship with him. He is a father, us as his children. And you go and you read the story of the garden over again, and you realize the intimacy that Adam and Eve had with their father in that moment. And yet they chose to do what all of us eventually have chosen to do, and that's to break that relationship with our father. All of us, at one point or another, have either abandoned God completely, we've replaced him with a God of our own making, or we've reimagined him and reshaped him into our own image. And in so doing, we've all severed that relationship that we have with our Father. And as a result, the world is utterly broken because the children have abandoned the Father, the good, good Father. And yet, through Jesus, that relationship is made whole again. We've strayed so far from our Father that we don't even know what He looks like anymore. And yet Jesus comes to show us exactly that. This is who your Father is. Jesus is the one and only Son, but He's also one with the Father. And that comes through over and over and over again in the Gospel of John as Jesus makes it clear to us why He came to show us who the Father is, and specifically to show us the steadfast love and grace and mercy of the Father. He reminds us of that, and in doing that, he calls us back into that familial relationship with the Father 
who created us. In John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, when you go backwards in the prologue, we read this. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The opening lines of the book of Hebrews, the Hebrew author tells us that long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets. But today, he speaks to us through his son, who is the exact imprint of his nature and the radiance of his glory. Why is John so determined to convince us of the identity of Jesus? Because we'll never know who the father is if we don't know who Jesus is. Because Jesus came to reveal the Father to us. And if, like me, you are a prodigal, if, like me, you are prone to wander, Jesus is that powerful reminder of just how deep the Father's love truly is for us, that he would sacrifice the one and only Son so that we might have the right to be called children of God. We left that Father thinking that we could do better on our own, only to learn that we can't. And that Father is standing at a distance, waiting for us to return back to Him, and He makes that possible through the blood of Jesus the Son. If you have wandered from your Father this morning, won't you come home? Won't you come home to that good, good Father? And won't you celebrate that goodness? Listen, Father's Day is, I know, a, a different experience for all of us. None of us experience it the same way. For some people... It's a day of celebration. For some people, it might be a day of sadness. Maybe you're mourning the loss of your father. Maybe you can only remember his memory. Maybe you have a fractured relationship with your earthly father. Maybe thinking about the relationship that you have with your dad only brings you pain. Maybe you've got the greatest dad who ever lived. It's different for everybody, but we can come together as a family this morning not worried about what it looks like to think about relationships with earthly fathers, although that's great, and I'm glad we have a day to celebrate that. But today, more than anything, we get to celebrate together experiencing our Father the exact same way because He offers all of us that love. This is a story in John chapter 4 about a father who would not stop trying to save his child. You know what the Bible is? It's a story about a father who will not stop trying to save his children. And he's calling you home this morning. Won't you respond? Let's stand. Let's sing one last song together. And if nothing else, I just hope you will celebrate through the singing of this song what an awesome God and an awesome Father that we serve this morning. Let's stand and sing. It's your breath in our lungs So we pour out our praise We pour out our praise It's your breath in our lives, so we pour out our praise to you only. It's your breath in our lives, so we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lives, so we pour out our praise to you only. Shout your praise Our hearts will cry These bones will sing Great 
Bones will cry, these bones will sing. Great.